This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett, and you have found us. The Conspiracy Show. Blowing out of the great white north like a polar vortex here on Blowtorch Station, AM 740, and now on nearly 30 U.S. affiliates. And speaking of which, a big hearty welcome to WBBA, uh, sorry, WBBA, FM 97.5 in Quincy, Illinois. Thanks for making The Conspiracy Show part of your schedule. And uh, to the good people of Quincy, I look forward to hearing from you very soon. Uh, Just a quick note, a programming note. Have you caught uh, Conrad Black and Denise Donlan's program on Vision TV? It's called The Zoomer. Airs Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Well, tomorrow night, March the 10th, 9 p.m., Vision TV. I will be part of this uh, big panel on The Zoomer. Rubbing shoulders with Conrad Black and Denise Donlan and uh, Elizabeth May, the uh, the leader of the Green Party, and, and a number of other panelists. And we're debating global warming. And I have to tell you, Elizabeth May, again, uh, sitting next to her, lovely lady, but we did not see eye to eye. Uh, So I hope you can check that. Uh, Check out the program, The Zoomer, uh, Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern, March 10th on Vision TV. And uh, on the following week, the following uh, week's show, I'll be discussing global warming. I think uh, you all know by now, after about a dozen years of talking about it, till I'm blue in the face, I believe it is a hoax. And uh, Dr. Timothy Baugh will be on the program. We'll also be talking about UN Agenda 21. All right. Meanwhile, the United States and the, U- and the EU continue to play this unconscionable game of chicken with Russia. And, and more and more, we're beginning to hear comparisons between this uh, increasingly tense situation in Ukraine and Crimea and the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not a fan of Russian President Vladimir Putin, but this guy is being backed into a corner. And for the life of me, I don't understand why anyone would want to poke a stick at a cornered bear. What is happening in Ukraine is nothing short of a coup d'etat. And the people who have seized power there are at the very least far-right extremists and at the worst, the very worst, anti-Semitic neo-Nazis. And this group of thugs 
not Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych. They're the ones that are responsible, from, from what I can tell, for most of the, the bloodshed, setting Ukrainian riot police on fire and so forth. And again, this group of thugs, which includes right sector leader Dmitro Yarosh, they were the ones responsible for the sniper fire, which killed not only Ukrainian, uh, the peaceful protesters in Kiev, but Ukrainian police officers as well. And, and not surprisingly, you're not hearing of any of this from the mainstream media, uh, which are going along in, in lockstep. And meanwhile, the, uh, the ethnic Russian majority in Crimea uh, will, will vote to succeed from uh, Ukraine in a few days, as is their right. Uh, and then we'll see what happens. If there is violence and Russia forces uh, intervene, this could escalate if the United States does something foolish. And this is my great fear. We should all be very afraid. And because it's so important, because the situation could go south very quickly, I'm going to dedicate the next hour talking about it, largely because I think the mainstream media throughout North America is getting this story exactly backwards. They're getting it all wrong. Last week, we heard from historian Webster Tarpley on the issue, and tonight, another astute observer of geopolitics. Stephen Lenban is a syndicated columnist, an author, broadcaster. He contributes to moneynewsnow.com, and he can be heard frequently on the Progressive Radio Network. He's also the editor of a forthcoming book about the current situation in Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, he's actually working on it as we speak and as the situation unfolds. Stephen Lenman, how are you, my friend? Oh, uh, Richard, it's good to be on with you. Delighted to be on. Yes, uh, unfortunately, under rather uh, serious circumstances, this is pretty dire. How close? Let's before we get into the details and the particulars. Let me just get your initial uh, sense of how dire the situation is. How close to midnight are we in terms of, let's say, World War Three? Well, I think without question, Richard, this is the most potentially serious post-World War Two global geopolitical flashpoint, that's the way to put it, the most serious. The second most serious was the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, and I remember that very well. But there's a big difference between now and then, Richard. Jack Kennedy was president. We didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it at the time. I was much, much younger. I was worried like everybody else. And a reunion, a later reunion, many years later, of the people involved in that who was still living, admitted that accidentally they had a close call. They didn't have a confrontation, but they had a close call, and we came closer to a nuclear war than anybody ever realized. At the same time, Richard, Jack Kennedy said later on, when he was still living, not too long after that incident, November 1963, so, I mean, 13 months later, he was gone. But after that incident, he said, and I can just about quote him, and I've, I've quoted him in, a, in, in an article a couple of times. He said, I never had the slightest intention of confronting Cuba or Russia belligerently. Well, that was Jack Kennedy. In office, Richard, he turned from Cold Warrior to Peacemaker, and that was the main reason he was assassinated by the CIA. No question. Now we have Obama. We have Washington infested with neocons. We have his administration infested with neocons. We should all be scared. The, the difference, the other difference between, well, there are a lot of differences, but I think the, the Cuban Missile Crisis is very apt because the other thing that Kennedy had going on or the world had going on was, unbeknownst to us, were these back channels between Kennedy and his people that were loyal to him, 
rather than the hawks that were surrounding Kennedy. And you had these back channels with Khrushchev uh, and, and the people that were loyal to him because Khrushchev also had his warmongers and hawks uh, to contend with. So in this back channel, there was also this, I think, a mutual respect between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Neither of them wanted it to happen, uh, war, that is. We don't have that with, with uh, Putin and Obama. Putin doesn't trust Obama. Uh, there is no rapport there whatsoever. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Khrushchev and Kennedy absolutely did not want war, but they were both worried that maybe something would happen on the other side, so they had to be ready to respond right away. Well, they cut a deal, and the deal ended things. The crisis didn't last that long. I mean, we have got the thing that's going on in Ukraine, Richard. It's been going on since last November, and it's not over. The fact that these putschists, these neo-Nazi fascists, these extremists, I mean, I mean, these societal misfits have literally taken over Ukraine. I mean, this thing just may be cranking up. So it certainly isn't over. The worst may be yet to come. And everybody should pay very close attention to this. It's a very serious situation. Uh, you're describing the uh, this uh, you know far right uh, neo Nazi element. You have the right sector. You have uh, Svoboda. You have the Fatherland Party. Uh, and and we were talking last week with um, Webster Tarpley about this. And I, and I want to talk about. I want to run through some of the key players. Uh, you know, Turchinov and and uh, uh, Yatsenyuk and and uh, and some of these others. But before we do that, let's dial it back to November and give this pers- uh, some perspective. In November, we had uh, the the communist president uh, at the time, Yanukovych. Um, uh, uh, basically turning his back, this is, of course, the Western media's perspective, their, their official line. He turned his back on, a, on, a, on further trade deals with the EU, and that set in motion, and it wanted you know, f- closer ties with Russia. This supposedly, ostensibly set in motion uh, a series of uh, uh, protests which became increasingly violent in Kiev. So if you could pick it up from there and, and tell me your perspective on how this got started and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, that really is how it got started, Richard. I wouldn't call Yanukovych a communist uh, president. He was very, very much allied with the oligarchs of Ukraine. And uh, they were very comfortable with him because they made a lot of money. They did well. Uh, They switched over to the other side when they saw he would be a goner because the only thing they concerned, the Ukrainian oligarchs, the only thing they want to do is uh, make money, uh, uh, increase their considerable fortunes. And they don't care who's running the country as long as business is good and they can do things the way they want to do it. Well, the nominal reason for all of this business was uh, Yanukovych was negotiating with the EU, a possible EU membership. I didn't know this until just recently, within the last week or two, but there was a clause in the EU agreement that especially riled him, that absolutely got him to, 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 to simply walk away from the deal. And it was, it was less the economic provisions of the deal, and more a provision that said, align with the EU will give NATO a right to basically uh, operate in Ukrainian territory, which means, you know, pulling Ukraine into NATO, setting up NATO slash U.S. bases on Russia's borders. Uh, Yanukovych wanted nothing to do with that. I think he would have been comfortable to go along with the economic side. But that one provision in the deal that I knew nothing about, all the articles I wrote I knew nothing about until within the last couple of weeks, that was in there. 
And I can't say for sure, Richard, but that could have been the deal breaker. He broke away. He, he wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, the EU and Washington would have been very comfortable working with him as long as he surrendered Ukrainian sovereignty to Western interests. They don't care who runs Ukraine. They don't care who runs any other country. The only thing they want is a, is a subservient pro-Western government, and they can get along very fine with them, whether they're Democrats, whether they're despots, whether they're anything in between. When Yanukovych turned east instead of west, that set off the firestorm. Did he have any choice, though, Stephen? Would uh, uh, would Putin, for example, how could Putin stand for uh, what eventually might have led to, to uh, NATO nuclear missiles on Ukrainian soil, as they are now in Poland, as uh, I believe they are in Georgia? You have... You have this situation where, since since the uh, the fall of the 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 Iron Curtain, uh, the the boundaries that once separated the two superpowers used to be you know right down the middle of Berlin, and it's being pushed progressively eastwards towards the Russians. I mean, this is a provocation. I mean, I'm no fan of Putin, but this is a clear provocation. Can you blame Putin for reacting this way? Oh, not at all. It absolutely is a provocation, and I absolutely believe Ukraine. She is a fourteen hundred kilometer border with Russia. Now, can you imagine nuclear armed, long-range missiles, U.S. ones, EU ones, aimed at Russia's heartland, sitting in Ukraine, virtually on the border? Can you imagine Putin tolerating that? Can you imagine any responsible leader tolerating that? He absolutely wouldn't. I'm sure Yanukovych knew it. He couldn't go along with the deal. He would have had to confront Putin if he did. And he thought he could just back off the deal, say, well, we'll postpone it for a later time. Whether he had any idea he would ignite a firestorm, I'm not sure. He was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. I mean, he literally was in a bind. He didn't know what to do. He <laughs> was either taking on the West or taking on Putin. His, 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 his better alliance, well, the alliance he really wanted, Richard, was one that really gave him the best of both worlds, to have good relations with the East and the West, but that's not the way Washington plays the game. And Washington pulls the key EU countries along with it, and the others go along whether they want to or not. I don't know whether whether <laughs> some of the Scandinavian countries or Spain or Luxembourg, uh, or some of the smaller ones, really want to go along with this conflict. But certainly Germany does, and Britain and France and Italy, they're the big ones, Spain probably, they're the ones that are really involved. So we've got this mess on their hands, in our hands, and just how this thing will play out, I don't know. But we really we really have a, a terrible situation on our hands, Richard, and I'm very concerned about so what's going on going forward. I'll be involved in a forthcoming book on this, and there'll be plenty in it, and I'm wondering that some of what may be in it Maybe the most the most important parts are events that have not yet happened, so I haven't had a chance or other my other contributors to write about it. But anything major will be in that book, and I'm guessing publishing will be roughly around mid-year. Well, we're going to take a time out here, Stephen. Let me remind listeners, Stephen Lenman is with us, writer, syndicated columnist, activist, news TV personality, radio show host, currently writes for moneynewsnow.com, and uh, since 2007 he's been... A, a talk show host at the Progressive Radio News Hour. And also, uh, you can read his uh, dispatches at his blog, sjlendman.blogspot.com. And uh, Stephen, we'll come back and take a, uh, a few moments. When we come back, I'd like to find out 
why uh, you and people like Webster Tarpley are uh, categorizing this as, as uh, you know, not some populist uprising, but as a neo-Nazi putsch, an illegitimate uh, usurping of power from a democratically elected government. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and my conversation with Steve Lenman right after this. We are back with Steve Lenman, syndicated columnist, uh, broadcaster, and uh, has uh, will be uh, editing a forthcoming book. Uh, what's the publisher, Stephen? Uh, the publisher is Clarity Press, Richard, and the title is Flashpoint in Ukraine, U.S. Drive for Hegemony Risks World War Three." All right. Uh, we, we talked about, you know, the, the uh, one of the main reasons that the uprising started, and that was uh, that uh, the the then president of the Ukraine turned his back on a, on a deal with the EU. My understanding further to that, Stephen, was that the United States and Europe said to to Ukraine, you must choose now. It's either us or them, meaning Russia. And Putin said, why are you putting Ukraine in this situation? Don't you understand how divisive this is? There's a, there's a very sizable Russian-speaking minority in the Uca- Ukraine that wants closer ties with Russia. Why are you trying to split this country in two? And Putin then offered that he would work with Germany because he has a good relationship with Angela Merkel. Uh, he would work with Germany and try to come up with some sort of a bailout package uh, to help Ukraine's insolvent banks. Uh, but the Americans and the uh, and its NATO allies said, no, Ukraine must choose now. It's like they were pushing Ukraine to the precipice. Oh, indeed. So the, the big issue, Richard, is not Ukraine so much. Well, Ukraine is very important. It's the most important former Russian republic by far. So of all of those republics, Ukraine is the grand prize. But the much bigger issue is Russia itself. The ultimate aim for America is to get rid of the the smaller independent countries. You see the ones they've gone after, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, Syria, Iran is the next one on the list, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the big one, Venezuela, and we know what's going on there, more violence, uh, instigated by Washington, uh, working with people on the ground, uh, the fascist element in Venezuela. You get rid of these countries that are small compared to the big ones. And the final two frontiers are Russia and China. Washington wants them both marginalized, wants them both weakened, wants them both isolated, wants them both controlled. And the problem with those two countries is they're not weaklings. Venezuela doesn't have a military to go up against Washington, nor does Iran, nor does Syria, nor do any other countries that America targeted. But China sure does. Russia sure does. Both are nuclear-armed. American can strike targets, pinpoint accuracy in their countries. They, in turn, can do the same thing in America. They can wipe out Washington, New York, Chicago. It's absolute insanity, Richard, to think that any responsible leader in America or anywhere else would risk this type of confrontation. But they were around in the Kennedy years, and I wrote about him. Curtis LeMay, for one, a general, I believe his name was Lemonson, maybe pronouncing it wrong. He wanted another Bay of Pigs. Kennedy told him to go to hell in less than diplomatic language. Curtis LeMay, he wanted to nuke Russia back to the Stone Age before they had a chance to do it to us. He said, we have an advantage of them. Let's take advantage of it. 
you know, so maybe we'll lose Philadelphia and Boston and and, uh, <laughs> and Pittsburgh, maybe Washington. Well, you know, it's a small price to pay. We can turn Russia to, to rubble. Isn't it worth it? Kennedy was absolutely furious. It was a Security Council meeting that they were together in, and, and these ideas came up. And Kennedy was so angry, he literally stormed out of the meeting in mid-session. Mid-session. Can you imagine a president doing that today, Richard? Impossible. Well, it sounds like uh, that President Obama is surrounded by uh, a lot of these same types of, uh, of hawks who believe that Russia is vulnerable and now is the time to strike. I don't know what – I believe they, they absolutely want to marginalize and weaken Russia. Now, whether they believe it's vulnerable now, I don't know. I would guess the game plan is, you know, death by a thousand cuts. You chip away at the former republics. You get control of all of them. You get control slowly of all the Warsaw Pact countries. So uh, 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 Russia is isolated. It's, uh, it's together with China. You try to figure out a way to pit the two of them against each other confrontationally. I think the way it's going, they're getting more aligned closely because they, they're not stupid. They know what's going on. They know Washington's dirty game. The best chance they have to confront Washington is to come together in a geopolitical, economic alliance, military if necessary, and confront the beast in Washington. That would be a very formidable adversary, Richard. And I have to believe that in their discussions, this is something that is right up at the top of their agenda, plus some of the other countries in the region. Iran might join them. I mean, you put enough of these countries together, it will be. It will certainly will be no pushover for Washington. And Washington, like any bully, Richard, likes to go up against a pushover. Bullies don't like to take on people who can fight back. And it doesn't matter whether they're schoolyard ones or whether they're hegemons like America. I think America would think very, very strongly before confronting China or Russia militarily. I think they may be crazies in Washington, but I don't think they're crazy enough to want to see their city nuked and they and their families annihilated. I think this will be the stopper for them. All right, let's uh, let's uh, talk about some of the key players in all this. And uh, of course, once again, we have the mainstream media in, uh, going along with the official line that that former President Viktor Yanukovych uh, was corrupt and that he's responsible for for the you know slaughtering of these uh, innocent protesters in the Ukraine. Uh, however. Uh, some pretty nefarious people we saw up on stage, up on the podium in Kiev, uh, some, you know, uh, groups like uh, Svoboda. Uh, John, Senator John McCain has been uh, pictured with Svoboda. They are, there's no other way to describe them. I mean, they, they are a neo-Nazi group, but they're not even the worst. I mean, th there's the right sector, and they think that Svo Svoboda is too liberal, if you can believe that. Tell, tell me about, uh, Svo let's, let's talk about right sector's leader, uh, uh, Dimitro Yarosh. Well, number one, Richard, I agree. I agree with the Webster Topley. There is no question that this was a blatant, brazen coup d'état. And I could put it this way. It was the most brazen coup d'état pulled off since Mussolini's 1922 march on Rome. Uh, Mussolini's was bloodless. This one was not bloodless. You know, maybe a hundred or so people killed, maybe uh, eight, nine hundred, a thousand people injured. But it was a brazen coup d'etat. And for John Kerry to stand up and call these people Democrats 
<laughs> Need I comment about him? I mean, it's just absolutely brazen and disgusting. And Obama saying much the same thing. I mean, I just, I mean, these people are really societal misfits in the best way to describe them. Uh, this guy, Yarosh, the right sector neo-Nazi commander, <laughs> I quoted him saying, uh, he's, he's, he devoted his life, he's devoting his life to, to, to killing Russians and Jews. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, that, that's roughly his quote. He's devoting his life to killing Russians and Jews. I mean, you would think that would be a, a stopper for Israel. I haven't heard Israel say very much about this. Uh, I, I have some contact with a couple of writers at, at Aretz, and one of them, who I respect very much, wrote a terrible article on Ukraine, literally got the story backwards, and I pointed out to him that these people are Jew-haters. They're anti-Semites. That's the topic you ought to write about. He hasn't done it so far. I don't know if he will. He has to know it, and if he doesn't write about it, it's a very irresponsible act. He needs to denounce them. But these are the kind of people who've infested and taken over Ukraine. Everybody should denounce them. I mean, they're really a bunch of lunatics, they're dangerous. Who knows what they'll do? And, and my understanding is that uh, the, the, the Maidan demonstrators, uh, the, they're uh, exerting a great deal of pressure to include Yarosh in the new government. Oh, yeah. His superior. Oh, I believe his superior is, is Andre Parube. These names, I must say, drive me crazy. I like Smith and Jones a lot better. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, uh, Parubi, the uh, 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 National Security Council, chairman of the Security Council. Chairman of the, of the National Defense and Security Council, that's yeah. right. He's a new top commander, and Yarosh is his second in command. I, I mean, these people come from the far right, the neo-Nazis. And, and they have key positions in this government. They are wielding an enormous amount of power. So they have a lot to say about what's go on, going on. And, and the way the Yarrow speaks, if, uh, if others who may be a little less extreme than they are decide on policies that aren't as extreme as they want, they're never going to go along with them. They're gonna, they'll probably try to oust them and put their own people in power. So we really see... We really have a, a neo-Nazi coup going on, and these are the people that are going to run Ukraine. I don't think there's any doubt about it. It's just a question of how will the West respond? How will Obama respond? Will they really go along with these people? Are they going to support them? We'll see. Well, again, uh, uh, you know, there were um, obviously many innocent people that were killed. There were also Ukrainian uh, riot police that were set on fire. Who was responsible for that? Well... The beans were spilled. The Estonian prime minister, a man named Payet, if I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, don't have his name in front of me. It might be Armas Payet. I think that's pretty close. He had a conversation with uh, European uh, policy uh, head, Catherine Ashton. Uh, he was in Estonia. Uh, they didn't know it at the time, but the conversation was monitored. It was hacked. It's on tape. It was played. And he admitted on tape that it wasn't Yanukovych who was responsible for the sniper attacks, doing all the killing and all the injuring. It were these right-wing fascists enlisting their own elements to do it. They were stationed on rooftops. They were in windows and nearby buildings. They were in other close locations. And they were the ones, except for one day back in November, when the, when the Kiev government police 
were very violent, and Yanukovych called them down on that. And after that, they stopped. And I couldn't understand, Richard, why they were so subdued in the face of all this violence, because you know what Toronto police would do. I know what Chicago police would do, what would happen in Amer every American city. If anything close to this broke out, the police would confront it full force. If they couldn't handle it, the National Guard would come in. If they couldn't handle it, the Marines would come in, and they would shoot these people down in the streets. They wouldn't tolerate it for a minute, and the headlines would cheerlead everything they did. What did the Kiev police do? They stood back, they had their shields, but they took the brunt of this violence, and they didn't respond forcefully. They let these people occupy government buildings. So if, if Yanukovych is guilty of anything, it's perhaps showing uh, too much restraint. Listen, we'll take another time out. Stephen Lenman is with us, broadcaster, uh, a syndicated columnist, and uh, the editor of an upcoming book on U Ukraine. We'll tell you more about that. When the Conspiracy Show continues, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. We are back with Stephen Lenman, syndicated columnist and uh, broadcaster. Uh, and when, when can we hear your show on the Progressive Radio News uh, uh, Network? Do this. I would tell listeners to do this. On the one hand, they can access my blog. The easiest way, which is the way I do it, simply Google my last name, L-E-N-D-M-A-N. If you Google Lenman, it'll come up right on the top of the Google list. And you go to my blog with all my articles, my books, my radio program. The uh, schedule is being changed right now, uh, Richard, so I don't want to tell listeners when to, when to tune in. It even has the wrong uh, dates on my blog site, but I'm waiting to change it until the schedule gets finalized. PRN is going through a number of changes. They're adding programs. They're removing others. So I'm waiting to see what happens. They're changing some of the personnel, and I'm waiting for them to shake that out. And when it does, I'll, I'll update my current uh, schedule, which is the Progressive Radio News Hour. It'll be on my blog site, so uh, readers of the site can go there and they can see exactly what I'm on. And all my programs are on live, they're archived, so people can listen anytime they want. All right, uh, let's talk about the new interim president, uh, Alexander Turchinov. Uh, and uh, I understand he's with this, is it the Fatherland Party, which is kind of an ominous name. Where have we heard about the Fatherland before? <laughs> <laughs> it, indeed, it is very, very, <laughs> very, very ominous to say the least. Uh, Turchinek, I think, is is pretty much on, on the far right. Uh, he is uh, Igor Turchinek. He's a he's a member of the Svoboda Party, and he's he's. Uh, no, no, no. I'm I'm looking at the wrong guy. No, I'm talking about Alexander Turchinov, the new interim president. He was um, he used to be parliamentary speaker, and he's very much sort of the right hand man of Yulia Tomashenko, the former prime minister. Yes, yes, and and uh, and Tomashenko uh, may run for president in the May elections, and there's a pretty good chance that she would be elected. She's a mega thief. She was in prison for good reason. She's popular. I don't think she's overwhelmingly popular, but I think she's reasonably popular. And I'm not certain who is popular in, 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 in this amalgam of right-wing fascists. I mean, they're all right-wing. They're all fascist to some extent. I think some of them are more fascist, some of them are less, but they're really a very, very dangerous bunch. So whether it's the president, whether it's the prime minister, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yatsenyuk. Arseny Yatsenyuk. Again, Richard, these names drive me buggy. 
Putin, I mean, for a Russian named Putin, Medvedev, I mean, they're simple compared to these guys. <laughs> I've got to get used to these guys. But but it is, it's a terrible group. Uh, they admitted, uh, Yatsenyuk admitted, that between now and May, they will be initiating terrible policies, so maybe new people will be elected to the top posts. But the ones who hold some of the key positions now, whatever they hold in the subsequent government after the May 25th election, they will wield great power. I say unequivocally that extremist fascists are running this government now. They will post May 25th. Heaven only knows what these guys and Timoshenko may pull, allied with Washington, allied with the EU, and that's why I worry that we possibly could be heading into a global conflict. These crazies might just want to take on Russia. They might even try. And if they take one step too far, Putin will never tolerate it. Just imagine if they start killing Russian officials. If they start pulling in Russia what they did in Chechnya, I mean, getting into Moscow, I don't mean an occasional this or that. I mean something real serious, one thing after another, going after Russian officials. Putin won't tolerate that. I could see Putin getting involved defending Russia's interests, even going into Ukraine to do it. There's an arrest warrant out uh, for uh, Yarosh because he's, al he's allied with, uh, with Russia's public enemy, number one. Uh, forget his last name. Umar, forget his last name. But he's a guy who's pulled off a number of terrorist attacks. Uh, nobody's certain whether he's alive or dead. But Russia has an Interpol arrest warrant out for his address, arrest, uh, whether Interpol would turn him in, even if they found him, is something else. Probably not if the West says no, but he's a dangerous guy if he's alive, and Yarosh is inciting him to commit more terrorist attacks against Russia. You mentioned Yatsenyuk, which is interesting because he came up in, in another famously intercepted phone call, and that was with U.S. envoy Victoria Nuland, um, where she was speaking with the U.S. ambassador in Kiev, and they were talking about, you know, uh, it was really evident that, you know, by the sounds of the the, uh, the conversation, they were they were plotting to see who should be the new leader. And it was uh, Victoria Nuland, who's also sort of undersecretary of state, uh, who, is, who mentioned Yatsenyuk as her choice. She says, this is the guy uh, that should be the new leader. And he is, of course, the interim prime minister now, uh, which is very interesting. So, yeah, uh, yet another intercepted phone call, which seems to indicate... Um, you know, U.S. meddling in this in this uh, coup d'état. Oh, absolutely. I, th I think the idea in Washington is they would like to get technocrats running the country. Yatsenyuk is a is a technocrat. He's a former. He's an economist. He knows something about the economy. He's been involved in the political situation. Uh, there are others uh, that are involved who are simply, you know, they're rogue elements, but they, they know a lot about causing a ruckus and creating a lot of violence, but they don't know much about affairs of state. So they could be in the government, but Washington's ideal government would be to have technocrats in charge and have these other people in less responsible positions. Whether they're going to be able to pull it off in Washington, I don't know, because you have these crazies who absolutely think, we pull this thing off, and if Washington thinks we're going to back off and give the, the top jobs to somebody else, they have another thought coming. This is exactly what's happening in Libya right now. Uh, Washington thought they had it made. They got rid of Gaddafi. They, they put uh, 
they put uh, puppets in charge of what's going on. And, and Libya is a cauldron of violence. You get people in various parts of the country running things in their own areas, including the oil industry. <laughs> Ukraine could end up exactly the same way. There you go. Stephen, we'll take another time out. We'll come back, and I want to talk about Crimea, because that could be the powder keg uh, that leads us into who knows how far it could go. Perish the thought. Back with more of my conversation with a syndicated columnist, broadcaster, author, Stephen Lenman, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. We are back with Stephen Lenman as we continue to talk about the situation in Ukraine and uh, Crimea. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, the latest in Crimea. Uh, as I understand it, uh, Russia, of course, they have their big naval fleet there in Sevastopol, uh, have told the Ukrainians to surrender the the, uh, the, uh, the naval port, and I believe that they, that was done without any shots being fired. Uh, the United States is accusing Russia of invading Crimea, but as I understand it, Stephen, and you disabuse me of this, uh, my understanding is that Russia has had about 16,000 troops in Crimea as part of a Ukraine-Russian agreement since the 90s. There was no need for Russia to invade. They, they have the people there. Well, I would say categorically there is no evidence whatever that Russia invaded Crimea. They have a 1997 friendship treaty with Ukraine. At the time, it ran to 2017. I wrote about this a couple of times. In 2010, it was, it was extended to 2042. It had an option on it to extend it to 2047. Uh, it allows Russia to have up to 25,000 military forces there related to its Black Sea fleet. It's, it's uh, based mostly in Sevastopol. It's in a few other locations. The only Russian forces that are there are the ones related to the Black Sea fleet. I believe that Washington knows it, EU countries know it, Ukrainian uh, so-called government forces know it, and yet they claim otherwise. And you know what the major media have been saying. Russia invaded Crimea over and over and over again. There's been no invasion. There, there are people, defense forces, Crimean defense forces, that, that, that are very active. They have no insignia. They're dressed in military-style uniforms. They're Crimeans, Richard. They have nothing to do with Russia. They may have Russian equipment because they've gotten it long before this crisis ever broke out. They're the ones involved. They're the ones confronting the Ukrainian forces in Crimea, they don't want, they don't want to uh, go to war with them. They don't want violence with them. They don't want them subverting what they are doing themselves, which they will vote on next Sunday. There'll be a referendum. They'll decide if they want to declare independence and or whether they want to join Russia. And based on what I know, uh, 60% of the population is Russian-speaking, 25% uh, Ukrainian, 12% Tatar, I can't imagine that a strong majority will not vote for joining Russia. And Russia's upper and lower house, the State Duma, lower house, the upper house, the Federation Council, the speakers of both bodies have said that they support what the Crimeans want and they will go along with it. I haven't heard a definitive statement from Putin. What he has said is Russia will not unilaterally annex Crimea, but it respects the opinion of what the Crimean people want, and that's close to a direct quote. 
uh, and the West is saying that they will not recognize any such vote, that this is illegal. But is it really? I mean, uh, uh, Crimea is a, is, a, is a semi-autonomous region that was given to the Ukrainians basically as a gift back in 1954 by Khrushchev. It really has no, has no uh, history as being part of the Ukraine, does it? Uh, Khrushchev uh, gave Crimea... <laughs> it must have been in a weak moment, uh, Richard. He gave Crimea to uh, to uh, Ukraine when Ukraine was still a Russian republic. Uh, apparently, he had no idea that years later Ukraine would become an independent country. But but key, as far as what Crimeans will vote on next Sunday, it absolutely is legal. Kosovo split from Serbia the same way. The World Court in 2010 ruled. I wrote about the ruling. I quoted it verbatim. It said more or less what the what the Kosovars did was absolutely legal. They had every right to declare independence and establish an independent country. In September this year, Scottish people will vote on whether they want to stay aligned with Britain or whether they want to declare an independent country. Have you heard anybody in Britain say, you can't do this, it's illegal? They're pushing like crazy to urge them not to do it, but nobody is saying that doing it is illegal. What Crimea will do is no different from what Kosovo did and what Scotland intends to do. The the portrayal of of Vladimir Putin, and again, let me you know put my bias on the table. I think he's a bit of a thug. However, he may be what Russia needs at this point. You can't go from seventy years of communism to a complete you know open. Uh, society, there's kind of be a, there has to be a transition, and perhaps they need this strong man. But having said that, he's being portrayed as you know another Hitler. Well, I'd like you to weigh in on that. Well, Hugo Chavez was portrayed as another Hitler too. I just can't imagine a guy more democratic than Hugo Chavez. And oh, do we miss him? Uh, Nicolas Maduro also very very democratic. I've heard the Hitler word thrown around uh, with respect to him. Uh, I would certainly uh, Putin is no Hitler. He, he's I, I would say he's far more a Democrat than Obama or anybody in America is in a position of power. But I would say this about Putin, and, and I've written about this a number of times. He absolutely respects the sovereignty of other countries. He will not attack another country. He will not evade another country. He respects rule of law principles. He really does. He respects international laws. He respects peace. He goes all out to support peace. He is fundamentally against U.S. imperial rampaging. He has said it. He gave a very famous speech in Munich in 2007 with a fairly high U.S. official sitting in the audience. He made him squirm. He wanted to get up and walk out because he pilloried America's imperial policy, and he basically said some of the things that I just did. When Putin respects other nations, he goes all out for peace, and Washington's policy is exactly the opposite. This is why I respect him. I don't like his economic policies. Too neoliberal, too much harm done to the Russian people, but geopolitically, he's a guy we really need right now. He sort of cast himself, in my eyes anyway, as uh, you know the one country or the one a person who's going to stand up against, you know, the, the one world government or the new world order, which, whatever you want to call it. And, and I think he drew a line in the sand um, during the, the, the so-called uh, Arab Spring uh, when the United States and, and, and its NATO allies were basically running rampant through the Middle East and, and instituting uh, regime changes and creating client states. And then when it came to Syria, Russia and China said, that's enough. There'll be no more of this. 
Yeah, indeed. I think China is the same thing. China is very subdued, and I think the China issue is it has such strong economic ties to the West, to America. It owns over a trillion dollars in U.S. Uh, bonds and notes, but also such tremendous business it does with America and also with uh, other Western countries. So China is very concerned about that, but it knows what's going on. It needs to protect its interests. I've been wondering where do these countries draw a red line? I think they may have partly done it in Syria, but for Russia, I really believe that, that the big red line is Ukraine. And I think Putin will let uh, Obama and the West go so far, but no further. And if they cross that line, I think that's when a conflict could erupt. I think Putin knows that if he lets Russia, if he lets America and the European countries get away with everything they want, then he will be sitting there isolated, much weaker than now. Would you rather confront this beast now, or would you rather confront them in a weaker state? And if I was sitting there, a fly on his wall, I would believe he decided he's going to do something now if they cross his red line, whatever specifically it may be, and he will not let it go further. And I certainly hope he feels that way. So what should, what should we look for uh, uh, that might signal, you know, which way this is going to go towards uh, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, violent confrontation or a peaceful resolution? Is it all about the, the, the vote in Crimea and how the, 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 uh, those not, uh, not voting for closer ties with Russia, how they react to that vote if Crimea votes to go with Russia? That's the big kahuna, I must say, Richard. Uh, Crimea is important for Russia because of its Black Sea fleet. Sevastopol is really an independent city, but Sevastopol will be voting in this uh, uh, referendum as well. But Russia has its fleet there. It's its only warm water port. It will not give that up. It's got it until 2047. My God, all these decades ahead. It won't give it up. Uh, the big stuff is coming real, real fast. The a referendum vote next Sunday, we'll see uh, Russia's parliament has already said it respects this. It will go along with it. If Crimeans want to become Russians, they will support it. I want to hear a definitive statement from Putin. But if his parliament overwhelmingly wants this, I don't know how Putin can say no. So there's a, an overwhelming chance, I believe, that Crimea will become a part of the Russian Federation and then we have to watch and see what happens. Will Washington's talk be bluster or will it do something? I don't know. Stephen, uh, thank you for this. Thank you. All right, Stephen Lenman. Uh, I really like his, his perspective uh, on, on um, not only Ukraine and, and uh, what's going on in Crimea, and that is, uh, this is making for some really tense moments, believe me. Uh, you know, if you're not uh, following it, you should be, and if you're not concerned, you should be. Uh, is this the new Cuban Missile Crisis? Boy, you know, you talk to people who lived uh, through that 50 years ago, 52 years ago, and... There were times when when people thought this is it. We are about uh, we are about to enter into World War III or some sort of nuclear conflagration. I met a uh, I was uh, shooting an episode of the Conspiracy Show TV program in California, and I met a, um, a, a psychologist. It was actually for an episode we did on Marilyn Monroe. Uh, and he was talking about uh, that whole era, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Jack Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he told me, uh, he and his wife at the time were uh, were driving through L.A. and they were listening to 
events unfold on the radio regarding the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he said, at one point, he said, I reached across the front seat to my wife, I held her hand, and we said goodbye to each other. That's how tense it was. Now, people forget. And God forfend, we're heading into that situation now because we don't have a Jack Kennedy in the White House and we don't have Khrushchev. Now, no fan of Khrushchev. However, people need to understand, Kennedy and Khrushchev had kind of a respect for each other, a, a grudging respect, and they were working back channels. Kennedy insisted, you know, they had the... the uh, the red phone in the Oval Office and Khrushchev had the equivalent in the Kremlin so that they could talk to each other. Both Khrushchev and Kennedy were surrounded by hawks who wanted to go to war. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed. And I wonder, is that wisdom, does that wisdom exist in the White House? I don't know. I wish to God I knew. Uh, just a programming note. Next week on the program, Dr. Timothy Ball climatologist. Yes, he is a climatologist. For years, uh, the global warming alarmists have tried to pick away at Dr. Ball's credibility, uh, but he is a climatologist. I've seen the diploma. Anyone can go online and see the diploma. Uh, anyway, he's got a brand new book out, and it's called The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. And uh, he's on the program next week, and uh, kind of coming off the back of my appearance on The Zoomer, Conrad Black and Denise Donlan's program, which airs Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern across Canada on Vision TV. And we just uh, concluded, we, 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 uh, or I was invited on as part of this roundtable debate about anthropogenic global warming. And uh, those who listen to the program or have heard me on the airwaves the past dozen, 15 years know my position is quite clear. I do not believe, I do not subscribe to anthropogenic global warming. Anyway, so I invited onto this panel along with people like uh, Elizabeth May and uh, David McNaughton and, uh, and, and, and others. There were about eight of us around the table and it was a lively discussion and I think, I think you'll uh, enjoy it and I think you'll learn a lot. Uh, and as I said earlier, Elizabeth May, a lovely lady, but we did not see eye to eye. Uh, so I'm having Dr. Timothy Ball on and um, we're not going to have a debate. And people say, well, why don't you bring someone on who believes in global warming? You know what, it, what, it, what this is? I call this equal time. I'm giving Dr. Ball a full hour on my program to talk about the deliberate corruption of climate science because it's equal time. Because for so long, I mean, he is basically shut out of, of the, uh, the mainstream media in this country. You will not hear Dr. Ball on a lot of pro programs, but he's coming on mine and he will, he will say his piece. And I, I believe a lot of what he has to say. Uh, Judith Curry, a lot of uh, very courageous women also talking about uh, uh, global warming, the global warming hoax. And uh, Judith Curry, who uh, is the uh, chair of the School of Earth and Anth Atmospheric Sciences at the uh, Georgia Institute of Technology, 30-year climate science veteran. And she was testifying uh, before the U.S. Senate who are reviewing the president's climate action plan and global warming theory. And uh, she basically is taking on these global warming goliaths, and she stated boldly that both the climate change problem and its solution have been vastly oversimplified. 
and she rebuts comments in presidential statements wherein President Obama suggested that extreme weather events are evidence of impending doom with substantial scientific documentation showing otherwise. Have you noticed now? I mean, we had snow in Cairo this, uh, this past December for the first time in 100 years. We are in a global cooling trend. And now the global warming alarmists are blaming the cooling on global warming, if you can believe it. Anyway, Dr. Tim Ball on the program. And don't forget to watch The Zoomer Monday, March 10th, 9 p.m. across Canada Eastern, 9 p.m. Eastern on Vision. Check your local listings for a real lively uh, and healthy debate, finally, on global warming and the environmental movement. And uh, as always, you can... uh, Check out everything you need to know about The Conspiracy Show at the website, richardserrett.com. Don't forget to subscribe and register. That's important. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Ah, dear friends, thanks for inviting me into your home, and uh, I do take that responsibility very seriously. My hope for you is that wherever you are, you are safe and you are warm and you are well-fed. Interesting, um, being someone on the radio, I don't get recognized a whole lot when I go out and in public. Occasionally, people will uh, recognize me from uh, the television show. And uh, I took the boys uh, last week uh, to um, an AHL hockey game, their first professional hockey game. The Toronto Marlies were playing the Hamilton Bulldogs. And uh, uh, went to the concession stand, and the person working the concession stand recognized me from the TV show. And uh, then it happened uh, a few nights later. The mighty Aphrodite and I were out at a function. Uh, a couple of people recognized me, came over. And, and when I am recognized, people come over, and there are three or four things that they want to me about or talk to me about. Uh, and depending on their age, the first category, it's either, who do you think really killed John Kennedy? And then they'll offer their opinion. Or maybe if they're a bit younger, they want to talk about 9-11 because that is sort of, you know, the watershed moment for a particular generation. Who do you think was responsible? Was it an inside job? So there's that category. And then the other one, the other category is obviously, you know, UFOs, huge topic. And they'll ask me if I've seen one and I have not. And then they'll relate their experience. The other huge area. And this has happened probably more often than I can remember when people come up to me at a party, at a function, and in a very quiet voice, they'll ask me about ghosts. And they'll tell me about their experience, having seen a ghost, and whether I have. And I have, and I have talked about it on the air a number of times, and I won't, I won't bore you with that story again. Uh, but that's the thing. You will... You would be shocked. If I were a betting man, I mean, if you're in a crowded room, 20 to 30% of the people in that room have seen a ghost or believe they have seen a ghost. But it goes unsaid. People don't talk about it in public. They're afraid of the ridicule. They're afraid of being shunned by their peers or being perceived as a little loopy. And many of you know, you know this. You've, you've had an experience, but you don't go around broadcasting it. But if you only knew that the person sitting next to you at the bar 
or at the hockey game had a similar experience. I think you'd feel a little bit better. You'd be willing to open up a little bit more. 20 to 30 percent, I'm guessing. It might even be higher. Many of you also may be living in a house that you suspect may be haunted. Maybe you haven't seen an apparition, but you, maybe you felt something or you've heard something. Well, this next hour, half hour actually, is dedicated to you. We're going to talk about what makes a house haunted. Some of the things you're going to hear you've already, you already know, but some of the things may actually surprise you. What makes a house haunted? Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, more than 30 years, researching, investigating, writing, presenting, and teaching. Her present work focuses on interdimensional entities, contact experiences of all kinds, technological and mediumistic spirit communications, spiritual growth and development problem hauntings and portals. And she joins us once a month on this program, and we're delighted to welcome her each and every month. Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing well, Richard. Now, I just... UFOs, I had a great time out in uh, Arizona at the UFO Congress again this year. We missed you. I know. I'm sorry I couldn't make it this year. I always have a wonderful time as well. And, um, well, i got to get there next year. Certainly with this weather, it would have been great to be in Phoenix in February. (laughs) Lord knows. Oh, my gosh, yes. (laughs) Now, I just threw that figure out, 20 to 30 percent. I'm probably lowballing it. But, uh, I mean, how many... Have you seen any polling regarding... What's the latest polling on the number of people that have seen ghosts? I haven't seen a poll in quite some time, and admittedly, I do deal in, in a, a skewed universe, so to speak, because um, uh, most of the people I come in contact with in my work are, are dealing with uh, haunted experiences and even problems. But uh, I would reckon it's much higher. Uh, haunting activity is very prevalent in the landscape, and certainly that affects the houses that we live in and the buildings that we work in, and sometimes the activity is very low level. We, we might um, not notice it a lot, maybe just occasionally, uh, but I would probably uh, say at least 50% of, of people have had some kind of haunting experience at some point. 50%, wow. Yeah, I was lowballing it then. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty conservative uh, in everything, so I was being very conservative. Uh, but, and, and I'm guessing also, I mean, I know with, let's say, for example, the UFO phenomenon, probably, you know, somewhere between 80, maybe 90, maybe even higher, 80, 90% of those probably have uh, a more prosaic explanation. But it's that, you know, 15, 20% that leaves you scratching your head. Would you say that it's same? It's the same in the, in in with ghosts and hauntings. That maybe eighty percent or more can be explained by some other more worldly explanation, not supernatural. There are many cases that can be explained naturally, and of course, a good paranormal investigator is going to look for natural explanations first. You know, old houses they have creaks. Uh, they often have very strange smells in them because odors get absorbed into wood and things like that. Uh, but um, a lot of times people will try and convince themselves that there are natural explanations for the things that go on. 
because contemplating the supernatural just becomes very uncomfortable for them. Sure. Well, we're going to talk about, uh, you've compiled a list of eight reasons, the top eight reasons why a house is haunted and what to do about them. Uh, and, and as you, um, you know, I go down this list, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons. Uh, and as you say, they don't have to be old houses. Brand new houses can be haunted, uh, you're saying. H- how often do we find that new builds, as they're called uh, in the industry, new builds are actually haunted? I hear more and more from people who are living in uh, very new places who uh, usually they move in. Uh, they might be the first occupants. They, they might be in a house that's, say, five years old or ten years old and um, maybe one other occupant before them. And they have activity, and uh, they have this idea that a place has to be old to be haunted because that's a very popular notion that's been uh, portrayed in films and in the media. And uh, yet they can't explain what's going on. Uh, increasingly, we're building on land that has energy in, uh, in it. And uh, there are spirits who live in the land. And if we put a house down on this energized land, uh, this structure is going to be occupied by the invisible residents. As we go more and more into rural areas, places where human beings haven't lived before, uh, this is happening. And of course, uh, <clears throat> we have the uh, you know the, the the movie Poltergeist, which uh, ended up being as a result of the house being built over an ancient Indian burial ground. Is that is that prevalent? Does that happen a lot, where a house is built over an, a, a, a burial ground or next to a cemetery, and then there's activity in the house? It does happen, and and sometimes uh, people uh, think that that may be the reason. For example, that um, their their house is located on an say an old Indian burial ground. Uh, well, people have been buried everywhere on the planet, and uh, certainly in, in um, ancient times there weren't any formal cemeteries. So, in a sense, um, living things occupy the bo- blood and the bones of the soil everywhere. But uh, there are uh, many cases where old cemeteries have um, been, um, they aren't used anymore, they've been neglected, um, or uh, we, you know, we've pushed into areas that had been occupied by indigenous peoples, and um, we put up houses, and uh, the dead don't seem to like that very well. Um, there are many folklore traditions all over the world that disturbing the burial places of the dead creates havoc for the living. And uh, yes, we do have uh, many cases on record in the, in the paranormal um, of uh, people discovering that their uh, their building or their home uh, has been uh, placed over land that probably still has people buried in it. Uh, sometimes old graves aren't relocated. Um, sometimes they're not entirely relocated, and uh, those those sorts of activities can take place. I can think of some places in West Virginia that uh, I investigated. Uh, there was an entire street, for example, in downtown Fairmont, West Virginia, that it turned out uh, had been uh, built right over the top of uh, old burial grounds from uh, from Indian people. And uh, all of those buildings up and down the street had paranormal activity in it. There you go. We're talking the top eight reasons why a house is haunted and what to do about them. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us. Let's talk about uh, item number one on the list. Uh, you, you call it residues, the leaving behind of residues or, or of energy. 
this is the most common reason why places are haunted. And, and uh, when, when we die, we leave behind these energy imprints. And uh, it's like um, um, memories of our lifetime, imprints of our lifetime uh, imbued in psychic space. And uh, actually things can leave behind these energy imprints too. We have um, such things as phantom buildings. And um, most often it's a, a, something like a person or an animal who leaves behind uh, impressions from scenes in their lives. And usually they are related to highly charged emotional events. Uh, they might be unhappy. They might be happy. For example, if a person lived for a long time in a place that they absolutely loved, uh, they might leave behind energy residues that uh, sort of collect together and become like ghosts. People might see uh, an apparition of that person, um, smells related to that person, like a favorite perfume or tobacco. Uh, these are very common phenomena that uh, are very benign. That is, um, it's not an intelligent presence that is looking to scare people, although people are frightened by it, uh, but it's the, uh, the, the shadowy form that uh, sort of is seen out of the corner of the eye or is always in a certain area, footsteps that always go down a certain hall, uh, noises that are always in a certain part of a house. But these things fade and, over uh, time, do they not? They do fade over time. Uh, they have their own battery life, so to speak. And then how long they last depends on how strong they were to begin with. Uh, the living can help keep them alive. In fact, paranormal investigators can contribute to the lifetime of residues by paying attention to them and wanting to capture them. That's fascinating. If there's certain energy in the land, that helps too. All right, Rosemary, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll uh, continue to uh, count down the top eight reasons why a house is haunted and what to do about them. And for you, those listening, any of this sound familiar? I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, just a programming note uh, coming up at, uh, well, just before... Uh, the last segment of the show, basically. Our media scientist, Nelson Thal, returns with another installment of State PsyOps. Now, we, uh, we've changed the name, <laughs> if you're keeping track at home. It was uh, previously called State Secrets, but we've hooked it up to a, a new Twitter account, uh, and State Secrets was taken. So uh, we're calling it State PsyOps, and uh, every two weeks, Nelson delivers... A news that you won't hear on the mainstream media. That's coming up a little bit later in the hour. Right now, Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us as we look at the top eight reasons why a house is haunted and what to do about them. Uh, Rosemary, we were talking about residues, the um, this residue of energy which, if strong enough, it coalesces into imprints of images and sounds and smells and minor movement. And uh, we were talking about how it can manifest itself um, apparitions, footsteps, you know, the typical things that we associate with a haunting, tapping, knocks, distinctive smells, uh, cool breezes, and so forth. What are the remedies? How do we get rid of these residues? Well, sometimes, uh, if they don't fade away on their own, uh, doing things like redecorating or, or renovating can disturb the energy patterns, and oftentimes they'll just uh, either suddenly go away or over time really start to decrease. There are other environmental things you can do, like um, doing a cleansing with incense or sage. Uh, crystals are very good for rearranging the subtle energy inside a room. And uh, I also recommend to people that they consult a feng shui expert. That's the art of placement. 
the um, uh, use of mirrors and uh, positioning of, of furniture and things like that. Uh, again, you're looking to rearrange the energy patterns, the way energy moves through a house, and that will often take care of the problem. Number two on the list of the top eight reasons why a house is haunted is deaths, which, you know, obviously makes sense. But uh, as you point out, a house, you don't have to have had a death occur at the house for a haunting to take place. That's right. And in fact, many people are puzzled by that. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll hear from people and they'll say, I think my house is haunted, but uh, I don't think anyone's ever died here. So how can that be? Um, uh, but oftentimes, deaths will leave, again, this residual imprint. And it may be a little stronger than just life imprints because um, dying is it's a major transition of energy. And if people have died tragically in a place, like through an accident, a fall, for example, or through violence, like a crime, uh, or they've committed suicide, they've been uh, murdered, they had uh, a very unhappy, lingering death, that can leave very powerful residual energy, too. So the remedies for that sort of problem can be the same as just normal uh, residues, you know, renovation, redecorating uh, paint, uh, move things around, um, uh, maybe alter the structure a bit, like uh, put a window in somewhere, something again to, to alter the energy. And if you can locate the specific place in the house where uh, the most phenomena are occurring, that would be the place to focus on. You know, it's, I've always found interesting, Rosemary, and, and, and for those people who uh, – I always bring this up with, with, uh, with skeptics or non-believers and, and, you know, the old saying, a skeptic is simply someone who hasn't had an experience yet. But I always say if, it, if this stuff isn't happening, why is it, is it part of real estate law that a real estate agent has to divulge uh, to a prospective home buyer that a place is haunted? Many people are disturbed by that, and uh, some of those laws also relate to having to disclose whether or not someone has died in the house. Uh, People are kind of unsettled by that, too. But we did have a famous case in New York State back in the 1980s where uh, people bought a house in Nyack, New York, and uh, it turned out to be haunted, and they wanted their money back. Uh, They wanted out of of the deal, and uh, it, it did go to trial. And um, some people would be very excited to live in a, in a haunted place. But for most people, we don't like to be disturbed by things we can't explain that seem to be part of another world. All right. And um, so the, the remedy, if a house, uh, if someone has died in the house and it was especially tragic or uh, a result of an accident or a crime or, or, you know, it was a painful lingering illness, that, that, as you say, could leave a scar on the psychic landscape. What are the, what are the remedies, then? Uh, you can do the residual remedies, like um, the renovation, environmental cleansing, the crystals. Uh, and I think it's also important to do prayers for the dead, to help the dead be at peace. And uh, that seems to affect some of these, uh, these residues as well. Saturday of the Souls. Right. That's a good time to Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. Uh, earthbound souls. Uh, there are people, obviously, who don't make an immediate transition to the afterlife, so they sort of linger in a twilight between the worlds of the living and the dead. Tell me more about these earthbound souls and what can be done about them. Sometimes people don't make the transition uh, just sort of accidentally. They might have a sudden unexpected death, and uh, they don't seem to realize they're dead. This can go on for quite a long period of time in um, earth years and in, in years of the living because they're in a, 
a kind of a limbo or twilight place where time doesn't exist. And uh, sometimes they stay deliberately. They have unfinished business. Uh, this is often related to uh, settling grudges or if they've been uh, murdered, for example, uh, bringing their murderer to justice. These are more active hauntings. And uh, I don't think that they account for that many hauntings. Uh, I think most of them are uh, residues, but I have encountered them in, in my own investigations. Eventually, these souls do find their place to the afterlife, but in the meantime, they, they might cause a lot of problems for uh, the living in a particular house. And the best remedy for that is to have a medium or a psychic uh, attempt to make contact with um, the invisible occupant, find out what their situation is, and uh, provide some help in making the transition. So, sometimes it can be a matter of taking care of some unfinished business or um, helping them arrive at a, a state of peace about uh, what's happened to them so that they can move on. And that often will bring a, uh, an end to the activity. There's probably no more no one more frightened of ghosts than someone who's committed a murder, if you know what I mean. Well, absolutely, yes. And there, there are so many cases of vengeful ghosts. Uh, and, uh, but but uh, when they're wandering around, kind of lost in this twilight, uh, it, it's hard to find the, the people they want to get back at, you know, so they, they just cause a lot of uh, problems for the living. And these could be active, uh, very active hauntings where people feel... Uh, a very oppressive presence. They might have uh, dark, uh, shadowy figures, uh, you know, heavy energy, bedroom visitations at night that are very scary, unpleasant smells, uh, a lot of strange noises, objects getting moved around, uh, discomfort, marked discomfort to the living. Now, if someone has been uh, um, murdered and their ghost, uh, their ghost is you know, earthbound, their, their spirit is earthbound. Uh, is, is that why they're earthbound? Because they're waiting around, they're trying to communicate to somebody and, and let them know who was responsible for their murder? Not everyone. And, in fact, nobody really knows the exact conditions that uh, create some of these earthbound cases because uh, not everyone who's, who's had uh, a, a tragic death uh, lingers on. Uh, I've been in some places where uh, murders have taken place and the haunting activity seems to be very low level. Um, it, there's residual energy, but it doesn't seem like the victim, uh, the victims themselves are still around. So it, it's a very um, uneven sort of uh, type of haunting. And it, it may have to do, uh, again, with some of the energy in the landscape that enables people to hang on. Well, we, uh, let's talk about energized land. It's, uh, it's number four. We, we already talked about burial sites a little earlier on. So let's skip to uh, energized land. And as you say, sometimes the land itself holds an energy that enables or facilitates haunting activity. The earth is a very active uh, place, and it's got um, many areas that are known as portals. These are doorways between dimensions. The, the land uh, can have um, energy that's uh, comes from its geophysical composition and contours. Um, caves, old mining operations, underground water, uh, magnetic contents of soil like iron and magnetite uh, can contribute to these energy patterns where uh, things 
from other realms uh, congregate or stay. And we all know places like that, that areas that have the reputation for being highly haunted. All kinds of things go on. And uh, it, uh, these places all have certain uh, characteristics in common that we associate with this kind of activity. So sometimes when I, I get a case and I uh, hear where it is, uh, I'm not all that surprised because I've collected so many other cases from the same areas, and it does seem to be related to, um, to certain things in the land itself. Now, there are uh, remedies for that. Uh, sometimes the energy patterns in the, in the landscape can be sort of rearranged, and master dowsers can do that to a certain extent. Uh, they're able to redirect the flow of energy patterns so that a house, for example, may not be so bothered. Uh, sometimes uh, if there are non-human uh, spirits causing the haunting problem, uh, then it may require um, bringing in someone who's got psychic or mediumistic skills to uh, have a little chat and uh, see if some sort of agreement can be um, ar arrived at. Sometimes you, you might have to uh, get someone in who, c who can do expulsion, for example. And sadly, I have uh, quite a few cases where nothing seems to work very well, and people wind up moving. There are these profiles in, in these heavily haunted areas where we see frequent turnover of ownership. And uh, if you can talk to... Um, uh, a series of owners, you find out that they all experience the same sort of thing, and it just got to be too much for them. Well, uh, and, and if you're willing to put up with some of that uh, <laughs> that uh, spirit uh, activity, you could get yourself a pretty good, uh, a sweet deal in a house in the Hudson Valley or West Virginia. Uh, well, there are, there are some places that they do wind up sitting on the market, and. Um, uh, I had one case several years ago, for example, that uh, wasn't too far from, from where I live, and these, these people got what they thought was a fantastic deal on a house. It had sat on the market for a long, long time, and uh, it was heavily haunted from the get-go. And um, then they, uh, sometimes people learn from the neighbors, or they do research, and uh, they, they find out certain things about the area that start explaining all these weird things that go on. People have different tolerance levels, too, and uh, sometimes uh, some people are more bothered than others. Um, the, there are some people who are they're like catalysts, and wherever they go, if, if there's dormant, latent phenomena, uh, it will get really stirred up when, when they come on the scene. And other people seem to have uh, very strong buffers around them. They can even sort of deaden out the phenomena and they're, uh, they're not bothered by it at all. Uh, we're going to take a break here, but I think we can uh, squeeze one more in on the list of the top eight reasons why a house is haunted with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Occult activity, that um, seems to be a bit of a no-brainer, obviously. If one is involved in occult activity, you're going you're to attract that sort of, uh, that, 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 that type of specter, I guess. Seeing this more and more, too, now, Richard, because all the attention on the supernatural that we've seen in the past few decades in the media, uh, that's encouraged people to try things like spirit communication, spirit summoning, spell casting. And uh, if people are dabbling around and they don't know what they're doing, uh, they can create uh, situations in the environment where they invite spirits to come in and they don't leave. 
and this creates uh, haunting activity as well. So you want to do environmental cleansing. Uh, sometimes you have to bring in a, an exorcist to do literally a house exorcism of unwanted presences. And, uh, of course, if any occult activity has been going on on the property that has contributed to the problem and still going on, you should stop it uh, and get rid of the things that, that were involved in that. Now, I have a sort of a long-running uh, debate with uh, the mighty Aphrodite. Uh, there are certain horror pictures that she will not allow to be played in the house because she believes if, you know, if we were to watch, let's say, for example, The Exorcist, uh, that you're opening you know, yourself up to, to be visited by that kind of activity. What are your, what are your thoughts on that, Rosemary? Uh, in a way, yes, because uh, where we put our attention, uh, that's where the energy goes. And uh, we can attract certain things. I, I think watching a scary movie isn't going to do, in, do that in and of itself. But if you were to start focusing a lot of your attention on uh, the spirit realm, and especially the scary aspect of the spirit realm, well, it does put your, your energy on a different level that could attract certain uh, unwanted presences. But I, I don't think that that, that um, alone accounts for a lot of haunting activity. You would, uh, you would have to combine it with some other things. Now, people do a lot of um, seances and spirit communication. Even things that they think would be entertainment or, or even of a harmless nature, well, people can open up very powerful doorways um, without really realizing it, and that can cause problems, too. All right. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, her website, visionaryliving.com. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and talk about spirit attachments, curses and psychic attacks, and possession. That'll round out the list of the top eight reasons why a house is haunted. Right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Rosemary Ellen Guiley stays with us for a few moments yet as we round out the uh, the list of the top eight reasons why a house is haunted and what to do about it. Uh, s- curses and psychic attacks, number seven. Oh, sorry, let's go to six first. Spirit attachments. Spirit attachments, Rosemary. Uh, quite a common experience, uh, and this is something that I think is, is on the rise, too, and people are realizing it. Spirits can attach to objects and literally ride into a house on the object. Um, and, um, you know, it, I, I don't want to say that every time you go out and buy something, especially secondhand, if you like to shop for antiques like I do and uh, estate sales and things like that, uh, but um, uh, objects that have, have been in possession of other people, uh, people leave their uh, residual energy uh, in these objects, Sometimes uh, spirits who are attracted to certain people, when those people pass on, uh, the spirits uh, latch on to objects that have the energy of that person uh, associated with it. And you acquire the object, the spirit comes along into your house. And if the environment is favorable enough, if conditions are right, sometimes they can lodge into your space and create haunting activity. And it doesn't have to so, be something conspicuous like a, you know, like an antique bonnet chest. It could be something very small like a a, a piece of estate jewelry. Oh, absolutely. Anything, literally. And uh, one of my colleagues, John Zaffis, uh, who who lives here in Connecticut, a friend of mine and uh, we've investigated cases together. We we're now working on a book on haunted objects. Uh, and the cases we've dealt with are ordinary things, you know, everyday objects, but sometimes a lot of secondhand things. And uh, so the, the remedy for that is uh, usually removal of an object. 
In fact, uh, I recall a case that uh, I had in Canada as a result of your show some years ago, and I think we talked about it on the air, where um, a mason apron had uh, that had belonged to a grandfather had uh, some energy of his that had uh, lingered with the object, and it was inherited by a family member, and they had haunting activity in the house. And when they when they uh, removed the the apron from the house, uh, the activity went away. So removal of of the uh, object uh, will get rid of the activity. Sometimes the um, the spirit activity can be sort of neutralized or nullified. But John and I usually recommend that you know just just get rid of it if you if you want the best solution. You call those Trojan horse objects? Yes, because uh, they're unexpected. You know something uh, something that you don't expect comes in and then starts creating problems. And they can this can range from mild activity to uh, to really disturbing activity. Some of the cases that. Uh, John and I have seen over the years people have nightmares, they, their health is affected, objects start moving around, they hear strange, strange sounds, and um, they don't often uh, immediately associate it with, with something that they've brought in. So that's one of the first questions that paranormal investigators should ask when investigating a haunting is, uh, have there been any major changes in uh, possessions in the house? Uh, even small things, and jewelry especially, uh, is um, uh, high up on the list because it's so personal, and it's something that, that people can wear for years, like a favorite necklace, a ring, a bracelet, that sort of thing. Uh, all right, where are we on the list? Is it curses and psychic attacks? Um, not very common, but uh, deserves to be on the list because we do see it from time to time. Uh, there are individuals, sadly, out there, who uh, try and harm people. They have magical knowledge. They know something about spell casting and about summoning spirits to, do, to go out and do tasks. And um, they can uh, cr- create uh, environments in, uh, in homes that uh, are very unhealthy for people. They literally send bad energy or uh, negative spirits into a place to create havoc. And Sometimes these attacks, uh, curses and psychic attacks, they're directed at a person, like somebody they've got a grudge match with. Uh, we see this a lot in unrequited love and in cases where uh, somebody's having an affair and uh, the person on the outside wants to get rid of a spouse or, or disrupt a marital relationship. Uh, sadly, that's, it's not uncommon. And uh, so these sorts of things can happen. Uh, quite often the agent that creates the haunting is one of these Trojan horses, like a gift uh, that is, is given. Uh, John and I have a number of cases where, um, uh, like a, an ex or a spurned lover has uh, pretended to be nice and uh, given a gift. It's brought into the household. It's really got a curse attached to it. And uh, the spirit that comes along with that then uh, starts creating a lot of problems. So removal, uh, sometimes you have to bring in an expert to break a curse. Um, There are psychics and mediums and uh, magical practitioners who, depending on what it is that's causing the problem, they they have a variety of remedies that they can uh, use to expel the unwanted presence or energy from the place. Just got like 30 seconds to talk about possession, number eight. 
Uh, not very common, but like curses and psychic attacks, sometimes individuals get the attachment. They literally become possessed by a negative spirit, and that affects the household. It's not just the possessed person, but it, liter- it changes the entire atmosphere in the place where they're living, and the people around them are affected in a negative way by that. So you've got to exercise the offending spirit from the person to get rid of it from the place as well. Rosemary, always a pleasure, and uh, we will check in with you in one month's time. Be well. Thank, thank you, Richard. You too. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. Don't forget to visit her bookstore. 50 books and counting. Remarkable. All right, when we come back, our media scientist, Nelson Thal, checks in with another edition of State PsyOps. You want to stick around for that. And here he is, our very own Howard Beale, mad prophet of the airwaves, media scientist Nelson Thal with another installment of State PsyOps. Hey, Nelson, how are you? Very good, very good, Richard. Yes, um, uh, it's State PsyOps. I think that's a much better title of what we've been doing. State secrets are still part of it, but uh, it's a good Twitter name, at State PsyOps. That's right. And we uh, have all the shows up there. That's right. If they go to uh, richardserrett.com and they want to uh, read these articles that you're alluding to in full, uh, right. just click on uh, you know this week uh, the, uh, the, the show and click on scroll down to uh, the State PsyOps segment, and you'll see in bold red letters and capitals, read the full articles here. You can click on that, or you can click on Nelson Thal, and that'll take you right to the Twitter page, State PsyOps. And keep in mind, PsyOps is spelled P-S-Y-O-P-S, PsyOps. All right. Uh, you know, everyone is, uh, is scratching their head over the disappearance of this um, uh, 737 uh, a jetliner with 239 people aboard plus crew. And uh, now, of course, we're, we're hearing uh, rumblings, Nelson, that it may have been shot out of the sky by a North Korean missile. What are, what are you hearing? What do you know? Well, just to sum sum up from the beginning again, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, the secret societies talk of a speech of Kennedy and uh, McLuhan. Um, Richard, one of the items on our is this 28-year-old CEO of Bitcoin exchange dead after possible suicide. And of course, law of averages, you know, before we talked to anybody in the intelligence game is she was suicided. Uh, Ash Wednesday plot was a great story written by Sherman Skolnick about the the attempted to attempt to kill the murder of Dr. Kelly, David Kelly, and how they um, they did such a poor job of making it look like a suicide that they still left the tourniquet around his arm and they didn't take the needle all the way out. They left the the, the front of the needle. I mean, the whole thing was botched. Um, we've got a death list, the banker's death list, and you've been following it. And yes. of course, uh, there are forces that are attempting to topple the U.S. dollar. This is not new. We're not coming up with anything new. We're just connecting the dots here because you've got the attempt to topple the U.S. dollar as fiat money, as reserve currency going on. And I refer everybody to the famous book, The Conspiracy Against the Dollar by Dr. Beter. So in By this way, case, we've I... got this uh, this 28-year-old uh, uh, woman, uh, quite lovely, uh, Autumn Radke, chief executive of First Meta 
uh, Point Limited and found dead in her Singapore home February 26. Singapore police said they're investigating her unnatural death and preliminary investigations showed no foul play suspected. But Bitcoin, as you're, it is growing in popularity despite, uh, despite attempts to sort of bring it down. It's still trading at about $600 uh, for a single coin. And that has to be perceived as a threat to the, the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. Yeah, remember the wars being fought backstage in the sub-media world, the sub-media world, what we media scientists call it, the world off the radar screen, the radar screens of commercial media or politics. So the banker's death list is because they're trying to the, – the forces that are waging war with the uh, – at, to, to topple the U.S. dollar uh, to keep it quiet are killing the bankers, Richard. All and right. This now, is just, this, this, she's just one of uh, – just go back to our previous shows. Uh, we've been doing a number of shows on the bankers' death list that started to show up last October and November and, and has been growing ever since. And uh, again, many of these uh, – the, the bankers on that list and depending on you know, who you follow, uh, Gerald Salente says the number is up to around 20. Many of these are, are uh, 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 forex traders, foreign exchange traders. So again, we're talking about currency. Nelson, uh, I was asking you about uh, – perhaps – didn't hear me. We, we talked about the uh, the Bitcoin story, but I did want to talk about the story everyone's talking about, and it's, it's this downed Malaysian plane, the seven seven seven. Which uh, well, all, these yeah, planes have a all, these these planes have a great safety record, and uh, people are now there's rumblings that it was maybe shot out of the sky by a North Korean missile. Let's not forget that uh, it was Pierre Salinger who we you and I brought Pierre Salinger on CFRB. And he was JFK's press secretary, and he reported that TWA was shot down by a missile, and the U.S. government lied about it. And let's not forget that General Benton partner, Parton and Admiral Moore, chief, the chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times in which he claimed that the U.S. Government National Transportation Safety Board was burned their notes and was f- screwing around with the fr- forensics in order to m- fudge the facts and make it look like the government case was true. So, there's, Richard, we're in we're stand in line. We're, we've got the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff talking about how planes are being shot out of the sky, and this is part of it too. This was a missile. Somebody on board was a banker. You don't want to get on a plane with a banker that is in the way of toppling the U.S. dollar, and that's what's going on. Well, also, the the other um, uh, rumblings are that uh, China has already issued a series of warnings about North Korean missiles, including one that crossed paths with a a Chinese airliner carrying about 220 people just last week. So... uh, who knows? And, uh, and the executive order was signed by Obama. We've got it on the the uh, state psyops. Uh, it, there's a link to it. There's the um, executive order where he has launched and declared war on China. Obama has. This is an economic war. Uh, obviously, we're yeah, talking all about. All but- wars today are fought both with many things. There's culture wars. The war in Ukraine is part of the conspiracy against the dollar to try and raise up nationalism in order to force the Europeans to grow so that they can topple the U.S. dollar. Meanwhile, they're fomenting Quebec nationalism. And this is being talked about backstage by the seasoned linguists, retired spies. Well, tell me more about this, uh, this uh, uh, what they're calling an Obama shell, this war secretly declared on China by executive order. Tell me more. 
Well, uh, Richard, uh, the Chinese are trying to are, are the largest creditors of the United States and are trying to discount the debt and sell it. You know, it's just like remember, you companies buy up receivables, accounts receivables. Well, the Chinese are tired of the Americans; they want to get rid of the debt, so they're shopping the debt around. And this is the causing those who want to support the U.S. dollars, mostly Britain and America, the queen of the queen of the Commonwealth. It's it, remember, fiat money is Commonwealth money. The British Commonwealth money today is fiat money, and the British and the Americans have made a lot of enemies by playing tough cop and playing the cop of the world and doing a very biased job of it. As we know, making up stories that there's mass destruction and bombing and killing innocent people. So the enemies have gotten together and are waging war against the dollar as in all fronts, economic, political and, and military. Well, uh, and these these currency wars that that go on backstage uh, often lead. To, I mean, first we have uh, we have trade wars followed by currency wars, and uh, after the currency war, it often it, it spills out onto the main stage as a full fledged, you know, uh, war of uh, you know armies and and and, and uh, missiles, biological and weapons, biological got, weapons. Yeah, they've got weapons that just kill the Jews or just kill the Irish or just kill the blacks or just kill the Italians. There's all sorts of sophisticated weaponry in a number of the arsenals here. Exactly. Don't forget that. All right. Well, uh, let's um, let's go back to Ukraine, which of course is another uh, uh, hot spot right now. And uh, there is talk that uh, Blackwater, infamous uh, Blackwater. Uh, may already have boots on the ground in Ukraine. What do you know about that? Well, look, Russia and America can't fight a war using nuclear weapons, so they use commandos in cities, you, just like the video games, just like the kids do with the video games. And the wars that you see being fought now are the wars like you're going to see in the video games. They, the video games portray it beautifully, Xbox and those things. And that's what's happening now in the Ukraine as they fight it out over the, over the, over the, over the dollar bill and the fiat money. And Britain and America do not want to give up the fiat money luxury they've had for 200 years. It would cause a great depression in America, a huge depression. Nelson Thal is uh, with us with another installment of State PsyOps. Yes, we've changed the name from State Secrets to State PsyOps, and uh, you can read the full articles on the uh, the Twitter page, uh, State PsyOps. Again, let me remind you, PsyOps is one of those tricky words. It's state followed by PsyOps, which is spelled P, as in Peter, S-Y, short for psychological, and then ops. So it's P-S-Y-O-P-S, State PsyOps. Now, one of the stories uh, on the Twitter page is rather ominous-sounding, Nelson, and it's entitled The End of America. What do you mean by that? Well, the people who have put together this Porter Stanley, an economic, a top-level economic group out of Wall Street, have talked about the toppling of the dollar and the attack on the U.S. dollar in economic terms and the debt that's, that is owed by America and how we're on the verge of a huge devaluation of the currency a huge devaluation of the currency and eventually what will happen is a uh, that will have a monumental effect on the standard of living of the average american and the, and the story doesn't the story. That because of course it's going to have an effect on the price of commodities as well as gold 
So uh, the uh, and the story uh, goes on to talk about the actual day this is going to go down. Something like July is it July fourteenth of this year? Well, they're pegging it at a date, and the reason why they can set a date is because it's when a law goes into effect, and the law will demand currency controls, and will start to place more Big Brother control over the operations of the money world. And um, that's going to cause a situation where um, they'll they'll very much lose the support of world the world and lose their fiat currency on that day, and the Arabs will start stop accepting U.S. dollars in payment for oil. So all the nations of the world that have to buy oil have to buy U.S. dollars. They won't need to buy U.S. dollars. So just think of all those U.S. dollars that have been bought to purchase oil from the Arabs won't need to be bought. There's no demand for it. There'll be a huge devaluation in the value of the U.S. dollar like we've never seen in the history of the world. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I had uh, Jerry Corsi on the program talking about uh, how uh, Adolf Hitler survived or escaped from Nazi Germany and uh, Adolf Hitler alive now uh, or was alive according to FBI documents and spirited to Argentina. And he was more than alive because when you start to think of the, he was running the Korean War. He started to run our history, Richard. He ran the Korean War. He ran the moon hoax fake. He ran the Vietnam War. He used the Bell Helicopters. The vice president of Bell Helicopters was Walter Dornberger, who was sentenced to be hung at, at Nuremberg. I mean, you know, it's amazing the facts that are below the radar. People just don't know. So much of the 40s, the 50s, post-war, we're now learning from from books coming out of Argentina, uh, written by journalists in Argentina and other and FBI documents, that the FBI knew that Hitler was alive and living in Argentina. They did nothing about it. Well, uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, when these FBI documents really come to light and uh, whether the mainstream media picks up on this and whether this uh, requires a total rewriting of history that that Hitler did not die in the bunker in Berlin in 1945 but lived on for who knows until perhaps even the mid-60s. Richard, that's pretty – Richard, I, I, I commend you, but I won't – I'm holding back laughter. It will never come out. Uh, if you can create forensics, they don't have – they can just bypass it and people will just forget it. The average guy is just too – he's been speeded up to live at speeds beyond which he can design to live or think. They can keep it out of his attention span with – Tons of award shows and survival shows, and they can distract his attention, their attention from that for a long time. That's never going to come out. All right, Nelson, State PSYOPs, uh, again, the, the Twitter page, if people want to read the full articles. That's why you should listen to the show here, Rich. There that's you why go. People should, Rich, exactly. that's why we have to listen to, the, to listen to what others are saying and go to the experts. All right, my friend, we'll talk again in two weeks. Stay well. Take care. Bye-bye. Nelson Thal, State PsyOps. That's the Twitter page. State PsyOps. Thanks, Tim Spreen. Back next week, Dr. Timothy Ball talking about the the global warming hoax. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.